Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Let's Sleep On It, Reclaiming Parenthood, the podcast. And I'm your host, Taylor Kulik, a sleep and well-being specialist and occupational therapist. My mission with this podcast is to examine the parenting narratives that dominate our culture and grow together as parents. Here, we will talk about biological infant sleep, as well as many other parenting-related topics. And you'll also hear real empowering journeys from parents who are parenting against the grain. I hope that you walk away from each episode feeling inspired, empowered, and supported. Please remember that none of the information shared in this podcast is medical advice, and you should always speak with a trusted healthcare provider if you have any concerns. Let's dive into today's episode. Many of y'all know that I'm really passionate about non-toxic living, and one of the things that I decided was important for our family to make the change to, the transition to, was the the products that we're sleeping on. So our mattresses, our bed sheets, et cetera, because we spend so much time in our sleep space during the day that I want to make sure we're not laying on harmful chemicals or breathing in harmful chemicals. So I have found the best, most comfortable bed sheets, Simply Organic Bamboo Sheets. They are eco-friendly, 100 organic bamboo sheets. They are designed for comfort and breathability. So they're heavier than your typical cotton sheets, but they don't feel hot. They're actually really cool. So they're good for all seasons. They're also antibacterial and hypoallergenic, totally natural and non-toxic. And they are so soft and so luxurious. They're so silky smooth. I love them whenever I am traveling or I just for whatever reason don't have my bamboo sheets on the bed. I miss them so much because they are seriously so comfortable. And you can save 25% off. So visit simplyorganicbamboo.com slash Taylor and use the code Taylor to save 25% off your purchase, making these an amazing deal. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Today, I have an amazing podcast episode for you guys, and I'm really excited to share it with you. I am talking to Tava Johnstone today of Neurodiversity Parenting on Instagram, if you know her. I connected on Instagram with Tava about probably like a year ago, and she's just phenomenal. Um, I love the way she thinks. I love hearing her thought process. And we're going to be talking today about the gender topic, specifically gender in regards to kids. We're kind of going to be diving into gender ideology, some of the problems and concerns that Tava is seeing, especially related to children. Our focus, her focus and my focus is on the well-being of children. So that's what we're going to be sticking to for the most part. Tava Johnstone is a licensed clinical social worker who worked as a child psychotherapist for eight years before pivoting to children's mental health consulting. Tava is passionate about supporting parents of spirited, sensitive, autistic, and gender-questioning youth. She hosts a private membership for rebel parents who are intentional about raising children aligned with their values rather than mainstream dogma or trends. So this this is probably going to be a slightly controversial episode, and I just ask that you are willing to listen with an open mind. Um, we all here want the best for children. We care about children. And so maybe think about that, kind of use that as the lens through which you listen to this episode. Um, and yeah, so without further ado, here is that amazing conversation with Teva. Teva, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so happy to get to finally talk to you face-to-face. And I'm just really excited because I this is a topic that I think is really important. It's a little controversial, a little, a lot controversial. <laughs> um, but I think it's really necessary to have these conversations. And this podcast is all about having kind of alternative conversations that aren't normally discussed and so I'm just really excited for you to be here and to learn from you. Can you start by just introducing yourself to us for those that don't know you? Sure. Thank you for having me on, Taylor. I've been admiring you from afar on Instagram. Um, yeah, so I'm Tava Johnstone. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I'm a former child therapist, and I have more recently pivoted my work to exclusively support parents. So I don't work as a therapist anymore. Um, I'm currently working in consulting and parent coaching. Amazing. And you're, so I found you on Instagram, I don't know, probably a year ago or something. I've been following you for quite a while because I just love what you share and you share such, your posts are so insightful. Like your thought process is so insightful. So I just like to see kind of get in 
inside view of your brain and what you're thinking. Um, but you share a lot about gender ideology specifically regarding children. So can you explain a little bit more about that? It seems like that's a passion of yours right now. Can you explain a little bit more about how that came to be um, something that's important for you? Absolutely. Um, excuse me. So um, a large part of my work as a therapist was supporting um, autistic kids and parents of autistic kids. And so the gender, the pediatric gender issue came on my radar when I started seeing the figures of how many kids presenting at these gender clinics, which are medical clinics, were autistic or had autistic traits. So that really put it on my radar. And knowing what I know about autism, I was a little bit, more than a little bit, concerned. Um, I had a lot of questions about, do these clinicians really have a, a firm grasp of autism and the traits that may lead a child to a gender clinic um, who's autistic? And as I went deeper and deeper into the issue, so with the gender, with the gender ideology and just the gender topic, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And it's like yeah. this onion that just keeps pulling back the layers. And I'm really passionate about the well-being of children, as I know that you are too. Mm -hmm. And I'm okay going against mainstream when I think that mainstream may be harmful to children. So I have a little bit of a fight response. Um, and I'm willing to say the thing. And I know that what I'm saying is like backed in my education. I have a master's in social work. I have tons of training in child development, autism, children's mental health. So um, my passion just comes from the desire to see children be treated in an ethical manner and also to not have parents bullied by activists. Yeah. I want to yeah. ask you more about what your experiences have been and how, how you're seeing children being treated. But first, I think it might be helpful if we kind of back up a little bit, like rewind. And for those who are listening who might not even really know what we're talking about, can we like just do a foundational kind of definition of what do you mean by gender ideology? Sure. Absolutely. So gender ideology can be a, a little bit confusing and the, the term itself can be misleading because it makes it sound kind of singular when really gender ideology um, comprises of two, two main philosophies, if you will. Um, so the more accurate way to say it would be gender ideologies, plural. So one part of it is queer theory, which some parents might be hearing in the news, depending on what news sources they listen to. But queer theory is an academic theory. Um, Judith Butler is one of the main founders. And essentially, it it's a way of thinking of gender as separate from biology, from the sexed body. And it, it thinks of gender as like this performance. So gender is what you do. It's what you look like. Gender is playful. It's fluid. It can change. And it's it's really a philosophy that delegitimizes biological sex. And at one time, this philosophy lived on university campuses and it, you know, scholars, academics, had fun theorizing this philosophy. It has since moved off the campus and into public school classrooms and therapist offices. Then there's this other um, philosophy or theory, kind of a weak theory, but it's called gender identity theory. And this theory argues that we are born with a brain that is gendered some people view it as like born with a soul that is gendered. And so it they view it as you can be, you could have a brain that's misplaced in the sexed body, the biological body. And, and then they use medicine and, and surgery to correct the outer body to match the inner feelings of the brain, what they call gender identity. And they use um, like flawed 
scientific studies to try to prove their point that there's this thing of this gendered brain. And they are the ones behind this argument that like, oh, the doctor kind of got it wrong. You were assigned this thing at birth, but really you're this over here. And now we need to send you through these medical procedures in order for you to reveal your authentic self. Mm-hmm. So this is what people mean when they say gender ideology. Yeah. Then there's this third piece that I just want to be sure and name Taylor before we move on. There's this third piece that is not gender ideology and it is a clinical term called gender dysphoria. And some people will transition, they'll go through a medical gender transition because they have this thing called gender dysphoria, which is a clinical mental health disorder at this time in the DSM-5. And it's not necessarily, they're not approaching it from this belief that they were born in the wrong body um, or that gender changes daily they are approaching it from this approach that the gender transition is a mental health and a physical intervention, kind of how we use cognitive behavioral therapy or how someone might take an insulin injection. So the, so the view with, with gender dysphoria from a clinical perspective is that the transition is a medical intervention. And belief in these philosophies or in these gender ideologies is not required to use that approach. Right. That was a really helpful, those were helpful definitions. Thank you for expanding on that more. Um, I find it interesting that the language that you're using is a belief in or a philosophy or a theory. And I find that interesting because in our in our like wider society, it seems like this is all being talked about as fact. We have to, this is just how it is. We have to accept it. We have to, you know, move along and, you know, quote unquote, be progressive. But what you're saying is that it's not fact, that it's actually rooted in very weak science, if any science at all. Is that correct? That's what I'm saying. So with the exception of the, the clinical view of gender dysphoria, Gender ideologies are not fact. Mm -hmm. They are theories, weak theories at best. Some some describe them as philosophies, meaning they can't be proven. They're a belief system. And people are allowed to have belief systems. And you know from university, when you go to university, you learn about different theories. You learn to pick apart the theories and say, oh, that's a flawed argument this theory should be thrown out because it misses this point, this point, this point, right? And that is a healthy, in my view, a healthy and honest um, examination of theories that adults on a university campus are capable of doing. But gender ideologies in the schools and in the therapy offices are currently being taught as fact, Right. As not as belief systems that you can accept or reject, but as fact, this is the way it is. And this is what we're going to do about it. Yes. I like how you use the analogy of a faith or a religion as a, as an Orthodox Christian myself, like this analogy really sits well with me. And I am, I relate to it because, you know, I can't go, I can't expect that the public school is going to teach everybody in the public school about my particular religion. I can't expect that everybody in the public school has to wear my cross, right? right? I can't do those things. My child can do that and we can do that at home and I can teach my child our values and our faith, but I cannot expect everybody else to also say, I believe in this too, right? It's kind of a similar thing. I know, I think people have a hard time for at first hearing that analogy, but it is really true. Can you talk about that a little bit more and maybe share some of the similarities between like a faith or religion and gender, the gender topic? Sure. Yes. And I like to think of it that way too. I find that it's a, it's helpful 
um, once people can get past being initially like put off by, Ooh, you're calling it a faith. Like that's offensive. Cause I am a person of faith. Right. Yeah. I find that it's helpful because I think that it can help us, um, view people with different beliefs with like compassion and tolerance. And we can make room for people with different beliefs because we have that practice in the United States. We're a pluralist society. So you're allowed to have your religion and raise your children in in your faith. And I'm allowed to have mine. And the Muslims over here are allowed to have theirs. But in the public schools in the US, these are government funded schools. And we should not teach religion or a faith belief system as fact. We can teach comparative, but we can't like indoctrinate or convert other people's children to our faith. So I find that it's like a faith because it can't be proven. Now, I know that a lot of people say my faith is true, right? And Mm -hmm. I respect that. But we can't really prove faith in in the material world. It's that's why it's called faith is because we don't need proof, right? We're, we're making a decision to believe something. So in that way, it's a, it's a faith because it's a belief system that cannot be like proven in the material world. Um, It also has, in my opinion, like prayers and rituals, like many religions have in my faith, like I light candles on Friday nights, like that's the ritual. I would not expect you to take your daughters and start doing that just because I do that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in the gender faith, some of the rituals are like they declare their pronouns, they put them in the signature they don't make assumptions. They see someone's sexed body and they don't make assumptions that that person is a boy or a girl, a man or a woman. Um, that's a very deliberate kind of ritual that they do. And then as far as like prayers, you know, I kind of think of their prayers as some of the things that they say. Like once I met this gender specialist on Instagram and this person DM'd me and immediately like said their prayer in my DMs, which was like, hi, my name is blank and my pronouns are blank, blank, blank. And it was like, it was so, to me, it just felt so religious. Mm -hmm. I don't really know how else to describe it. And I wanna be sensitive because I don't wanna offend people who do belong to a religion who think that this gender stuff is crazy. And I respect religion. Like I said, I belong to a religion. I respect religion. And I don't view gender faith equally to how I view older religions and established legitimate religions. But I just mean like on a surface level, it's kind of quasi religion. It comes really close to religion. And I use that argument because I'm such a believer in I'm like a hopeless believer in our constitution. It's kind of geeky, but our first amendment rights allow us to believe in a faith and not believe in a faith. Mm -hmm. They allow us to um, object from participating in other people's faiths. And our constitution allows us to send our kids to a public school And not think that they're going to be indoctrinated into a faith that's not our own. Right. You know? Yeah, Yeah, totally. I totally agree. I actually use that analogy, the faith analogy, a lot with the medical system as a whole. Do Um, you? Because I think it's very similar. And I I say, and more like in the the cult kind of fashion, though, (laughs) not necessarily a religion, but like doctors are our gods and- Um, if we question them, like we are punished, which I would say in a, like a healthy faith, you know, you are allowed to ask questions and things, but I think that just, there's always that, like that extreme end where you can't question religious dogma, um, or you will be punished. And so I think it's kind of similar in that way, um, which I guess it's all, it all kind of interlaps, right. The medical institution and this gender topic as well. It it really does overlap when you really dive into it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
I like how you said that tolerance, I wrote it down tolerant in the United States, we have tolerance and we make room, we can make room for different, and maybe you weren't, you didn't say the United States specifically, but that we can tolerate and make room for different belief systems. And um, I think that, you know, my guess would be that the majority of people can have tolerance and make room for different belief systems, even when it comes to the gender topic. However, I, I find, I found that in the last, I don't know, maybe just a couple of years, I, I feel like it's moved very quickly. Yeah. It's moved beyond just having tolerance and making space for this belief to you must participate in it yeah. um, or you are called names, you are, you know, canceled, you're fired from your job, yeah. um, whatever it may be. And specifically with children, like you said, it's being taught as fact and kids are not able to differentiate when somebody is teaching them as fact and as something they must do. Um, and especially under the guise of inclusion and kindness and love and all of these things that we teach our kids that we should have and we should do. Yeah. It's very confusing for them. And so that's my concern. And I would love to hear more of your thoughts about like specifically what you're seeing with the gender topic in children and why you are concerned about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree with you that it's intensified a lot lately, even in the last six months, it seems to have intensified. And I also agree that we've moved beyond tolerance and, and to me, it seems like we're actively forcing belief. And that's where I just have a very hard line. Right. Um, yeah. So with children, something that I'm really, I'm, I have many concerns and I'll try to like pace myself. Yeah. Um, but okay. So one of the main things I'm concerned about with children is the, the delegitimizing of biological sex of the sexed body. So, you know, children are taught about boys and girls, right? I mean, toddlers learn this. And in these more progressive, those are in quotes. Are we on video for the? No, I usually okay. don't post videos. Okay. So. Okay. I wasn't sure. Okay. Tava just quoted. Um... Yes. I just did my air quotes. <laughs> um, okay. So in the more progressive schools, which is the entire West coast right now, and you know, just it's all over, but in the more progressive schools, they're taking these kindergartners and teaching them that to be a boy or a girl doesn't have anything to do with the body. After their parents, most parents have been teaching, it starts from toddlerhood. They start to learn about their body and who's a, who's a boy, who's a girl. And, you know, if you have opposite sex um, siblings, they see each other and they know boy, girl. Um, and so it's, in, it's entirely, it's aligned with queer theory in that they're, they are disconnecting this thing called gender from the sex body. And I just think that that's really dangerous to like teach kids that, that, the, that material reality doesn't matter. Right. And that, and that it's about the, the feelings of someone in their brain, if they feel yeah. like a boy or a girl. Well, and just to jump in, it also um, is dangerous on the level that it teaches kids not to trust themselves because every child knows the difference between a boy and a girl. Most children, I would, or I would say all children can look at most people. Now, of course, there are some people that it's harder to tell, but most of the time we can look at a woman or a man or a boy or a girl and identify whether they are a man or a woman or a boy or a girl. And when you're telling children, no, like you think that that's a boy, but that's actually a girl that teaches children not to trust their sense of reality. Yeah. It's the ultimate gaslighting. Gaslighting is a mm -hmm. form of psychological abuse. And I think that it is, it's so dangerous. I think it's cruel. When somebody gaslights you, there is a rupture in the relationship because the child knows reality. And then to have their loving caregiver or their, their teacher who they think they can trust tell them that the sky is not blue when they're looking at a blue sky, you know, right. it's so psychologically disorienting for children. And I just, I think that it's really, um, 
I'm trying not to use the word depraved, but I think it's pretty depraved in a yeah. way. I just, it's just not right to be scrambling children's um, perception of reality in that kind of way. Mm-hmm. It's also very sexist. So the way that they teach these young ones with things like the gender unicorn, the gender bred person, they teach these really sexist stereotypes and they teach the kids that if they align with sexist stereotypes, then they might be that other gender. They use the word gender. It's so confusing because it's it's like everything that we're trying to, that most parents are trying to work against. Like most parents are not going to tell their little girl she can't play with the ball because that's a boy's ball. Right. We're not going to tell our little girls she can't play in the mud and dig for worms because that's what boys do. Like healthy, educated parents are not doing that. But these lessons are teaching the kids that if they do these stereotypes, they might be the other sex, except they don't use the word sex. They use the word gender. And isn't, didn't we just kind of move past this this huge movement for probably yeah. multiple years yeah. to encourage boys and girls to play with whatever toys they wanted to regardless of whether it was traditionally considered a boys girl or a boys toy or a boy a girls toy like didn't we just overcome that or not overcome it but we just had that we just experienced that and now it almost it's like you said it's so confusing I think a lot of what the information that's out there right now seems so contradictory and it's almost like we're actually being regressive in like we're going backwards we're not moving forward we're going backwards yeah and it's I think a lot of parents don't actually realize this is happening but what was the children's hospital Teva that released those videos and there were actual like gender specialists saying that babies and toddlers can be transgender and some of the signs are whether they play with the opposite gendered toys or whether a boy wants to sit down to use the potty or whether a boy wants to cut his hair that actually or doesn't want to cut his hair that means he's a girl right like this is actually happening these professionals scare quotes are actually saying these things yeah that was boston's children's Boston. boston children's hospital and yeah, they said if your little girl doesn't want the barrette in her hair or won't let you brush her hair, you know, maybe she's trans. And I'm thinking to myself, do you know anything about autistic kids? Like they have sensory issues or just kids right. in kids general. Kids in general, yes. Kids in general. And I, it's important that parents know that to call oneself a gender specialist, there's no criteria for that. Anyone can call themselves a gender specialist. And so really these people who have all this training in what they call gender, it's they have training in queer theory and the gender ideologies. It's very ideological driven. Um, but yes, it's like, what is a toddler going to trans out of? Mm-hmm. If you if if you if you just let them be kids and let the girl reach for the doll or reach for the blocks and let them be kids, there's nothing to trans out of. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're forcing your preschooler to only wear dresses, to only like pink, to only play with the dolls, then it makes sense. She might protest and she might reach for the more traditionally boys. Um, clothing because it's more comfortable or toys because she likes them more. And then these these so-called gender specialists will tell you that that's a sign that that maybe she's trans. Yeah. Well, and Teva, I think it's really interesting because our current culture is very into body positivity and accepting ourselves for the way we are and the way we look and the way we dress. Yet this making kids or encouraging kids to change their bodies mm-hmm. does not that, that does not align with that kind of philosophy it's the opposite of that it's self-hatred and now we have to change our bodies and mutilate our bodies to match our feelings yeah like what is it's, that about it's so contradictory to the body positivity movement yet you will see body positive people supporting this movement mm-hmm. and trying to like separate the two but yes it's teaching kids that happiness is found in a different body it's teaching kids that when they have distress 
and don't feel like the other girls on the playground, that maybe a plastic surgeon is the answer, that maybe drugs are the answer that make you look a different way. And so it's it's entirely regressive to the acceptance, the body acceptance movement. And it's also really disembodied which is opposite of what we do in like trauma therapy. So the entire purpose of trauma therapy is to get people back into their bodies because trauma will really separate you from your body. And I'm bringing this up because many people who are trans identified have a history of sexual abuse um, and other forms of trauma, hostile, toxic homes where they're witnessing domestic violence and they start to detach from their bodies. And in trauma work, we wanna get people back into their bodies. But this, these gender ideologies are teaching people to cut off from their body and hire the surgeons and hire the endocrinologists to help them further cut off from their body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Sorry, Tava, I interrupted you because you were oh, telling no, no, us okay. about you were telling us about like what your concerns are specifically with gender, the gender topic in children. So I don't know if you had any more concerns that yeah, you wanted to touch on. I do. I've just a couple more. Um, another another main one is we're teaching girls that they should feel comfortable and accept a male in their private spaces, in mm. the bathroom, in the locker room. And when these girls object, there are stories in the news of, you know, teen girls objecting to having a male in the locker room. In my state of California, all a, a, a male has to do is say that they feel non-binary or that they feel trans or feel like a woman, literally feelings, and they can legally enter the girls' spaces. I don't know if you remember how vulnerable it is to be in a locker room and undress, even with just other girls. Imagine having males in there. And so we're teaching the girls and the, the teens that their feelings don't matter. Right. That's what we're teaching that, them. That men's feel biological male feelings are more important than their safety and their feelings. Absolutely. And it's not just girls' feelings. It's their literal safety and yeah. right to privacy. Yeah, privacy, dignity. I mean, we don't live in a nudist culture here no. in the US. Like sometimes when I post about this, people will, will message me from like the Netherlands and say that like in they have a like a spa culture where it's like this nude spa culture. And I'm like, okay, wonderful. That's not our culture here. Right. And and culture does matter. And so we can't go for, you know, hundreds of years here in the U.S. and further back, you know, where our founders came from, we were not nude, co-ed nude, right? right? And so, no, I'm not going to teach my daughter that she should be okay with males, biological males in the locker room with her and that she's problematic or transphobic for not wanting that. Right. Also, there was a time in history, so I have trans friends who are trans men, and so they are biological females, and they look like men. I don't claim to have the answer for all of this with the locker rooms and the bathrooms. I'm like, people in policy, they're the ones that are supposed to figure this out. But my point is that there was a time when people transitioned, when they tried really hard to pass, what we call pass, which is to look like the opposite sex. And so the theory is that the more you look like the opposite sex, the less threatening you are when you are in sex segregated spaces. But the way things are now with queer theory and people who have like non-binary identities, they don't have to look any kind of way. So mm -hmm. a man who looks like a man with a beard, um, who hasn't taken any measures to look like a woman, can just say he feels like a woman and legally enter women's spaces in my state of California. It's called self-ID. There doesn't have to be any documentation anywhere. Yeah. And it leaves it open for predators and people yes. with abusive intentions. 
And I think people in the, at least in the past, I don't know if people are still saying this, but when you mentioned that point, I think a lot of people will, will say that doesn't happen. Like people aren't really like using this, like predators aren't really using this to prey on girls and women. Um, but they are like, we hear yeah. news stories. I hear news stories probably multiple times a week about yeah. men in the locker room, in the women's locker room, flashing themselves to a woman or not related to children, but in women's prisons, males that are being housed yeah. in women's prisons, sexually assaulting um, or get, or impregnating a woman. So these things are happening constantly and it's happening yeah. in public schools too. I think a while back, I heard a story about assaults, maybe a, multiple stories about assault in, um, on a, a girl, a young girl in a public bathroom at the school. Yeah. I see one. I see one like maybe every week, every other week, and I don't go looking for them. They just kind of pop up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one thing that author Helen Joyce says, she wrote the book called trans. I highly recommend it for parents who want to learn more about policy issues, kind of what we're talking about now. These are policy issues. She says, and I, I really support this argument that we don't know which males are going to be predators. We don't know which males are going to be perpetrators. We can't possibly screen every individual. So that's why Western society has sex segregated spaces, blanket policy as a way to make up for the fact that we don't know what each individual is going to do. Right. Also, even if they're not predators, and I'm not saying that trans people have a higher rate of being predators, that's not what this is about. We're talking about biology. And even when uh, biological males decide to identify as trans women, about 80% of them keep their genitalia. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be exposed to male genitalia, nor do I want my daughter exposed to male male genitalia when we're in private spaces. Right. And that's not transphobic. That's just standard um, biology and American Western culture. Yes. And you have, you should have a right to that protection. And I think the problem is, is that we as women and girls and children are being asked to sacrifice our rights and our safety to appease, again, really the feelings of people in general, but especially biological males. And we're like women and and girls are an especially vulnerable population. And it impacts far more women and girls than it does. And, you know, it's like, it's hard to have these conversations. Of course, you know this because people are so quick to name call, but like the reality is, is that these weighing the pros and cons, the risks and benefits has to be done. And the reality is that by creating these policies where biological men can enter women's protected spaces, basically with no matter what, like there's no requirements, we are putting a massive amount of women and girls at risk. Is, Is that worth it? Like, what is the benefit of that? Yeah, I call it just, it's just a virtue signaling benefit. It's a political benefit for the politicians who pass these policies. It's a benefit of appeasing this, like this lobby, this activist lobby. Um, and the, the the one requirement, there's one requirement. It's that if they are asked by staff, they must declare that they are a trans woman or, or a woman or non-binary. Only if they're asked. Otherwise free for all, but it, you know, a predator, a sociopath, all they would do is just lie. Right. You know, some peeping Tom, did we forget about these people? Yeah. <laughs> these men it's who want to look at women and girls. Are we just like wiping them from our conscience conscious, you know? Yeah. And my, I just want to name one, I guess I'll name one more concern. And that's, um, my concern is that this hyper focus on identity is being taught in the schools where parents have less of a say on what their child is exposed to. So for example, at home, you can have internet um, limits, but at school, if you're not homeschooling, you know, you're sending your child in and they're being exposed to all these what I view to be harmful ideas about disassociating from the body and that if they're feeling distress these are the answers 
and we have gender clinics partnering with schools as well. So there's like all this propaganda. I guess that's my that's what I'm trying to say is that there's this marketing propaganda that is influencing kids to go down this potentially irreversible medical path. Yeah. And what do you think about, I mean, I'm, kids are very impressionable. What do you think about the social pressure? Because do you believe that every child who is saying that they are non-binary or transgender or whatever it may be, do you think that they all truly have gender dysphoria or these are separate things, right? Like, can you talk just a little bit about that? Sure. Yes. So, um, Gender dysphoria used to be a very rare condition that would um, usually present in early childhood without much of a social kind of influence. It was super duper rare. Now we're seeing kids in entire friend groups um, all have this trans identity and humans are social creatures teens are social creatures, especially teen girls. This is natural, normal development. They are individuating away from parents and joining this outer uh, peer community. And this is normative development. It helps them leave the nest. It helps them achieve adult independence. But when the, when the whole group is starting to, um, adopt these identities, then yes, it's influential. We have studies to show that it's um, socially influential. Some call it a social contagion. People get really triggered by the word contagion as if it's a disease, but they just mean it's like a social influence. Right. Documented in history, we um, we have knowledge that girls socially influence each other with anorexia, Mm-hmm. with cutting, self-harm, even suicide. We have laws in other countries. The U.S. has re- pretty relaxed laws about marketing to kids, but there are other countries, Canada and some European countries, that have very firm laws about marketing to kids, advertising to kids, because we know that kids are very susceptible. Mm-hmm. But this gender in the schools, I view it as marketing to kids. And yes, they're susceptible and they start to adopt the identities. And right now to be cool is to be like non-cis. Yeah. It's to be trans, non-binary. Also with kids who are white, if they live in more progressive communities that teach that like to be white is to be problematic, to be boring, to be an oppressor. They want to identify out of being like boring and cis and even straight. And so what we're seeing is a lot of um, white kids are adopting these identities that help them not be at the bottom of the barrel. Yeah, it's almost like a way to move up in social ranking. Yes, when, when marginalization gives you social clout it's a way to climb that ladder wow that's super interesting just to consider because i mean it's always been like kids and especially teenagers have always for probably forever since there's have at least been public schools and, and groups and cliques of children or teenagers they've been wanting to get popular and be with the cool kids and be in the in crowd and now that just looks so much different and it's kind of um being facilitated through gender yes in a yes. lot of ways yes. and privilege right because if you're if you're non-binary or transgender or a part of like the I don't know is it called the queer community or the LGBTQ community yes um you they say you don't have as much privilege right mm-hmm. that's yeah. kind of how it works right like you're yeah. un- you're not privileged if you're a part of that community Exactly. You get to, you get to kind of check out of some of your, what they call privilege. So when they're taught that to be white and to be straight and to be quote, cis is the most privileged you can be. And that, and that's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to be like the privileged snob when, when privilege is being sold as like, problematic, right? And privilege doesn't allow you to speak as well because people will say, you know, sit down, shut up, you're privileged. Right. 
They you're more likely to be silenced and, and yes. censored and suppressed. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So if you can claim uh, an, an identity that that allows you to just kind of check into because you can't change your race, you can't change your skin color, but you can say that you're queer. That allows you to be less privileged. Yeah. We have studies that are showing that kids are identifying as um, not being straight and like they have no activity. There's no relations with the same sex peer. Mm. So they're not really acting on these things that they're saying that they are, yeah. but it allows them to not be straight. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Abigail, I think Abigail Schreier talked about that in her book. Right. Yeah. And as well as how kids today, teenagers specifically are just not as connected as we were in the past. Like they don't have as many like one-on-one or like close in-person relationships as they used to. Yeah, they don't. And there's a host of reasons for that, but I'm someone who argues that that is not a good thing. Yeah. Well, especially because they are still having the interactions, but they're often online with people they don't know well, with strangers, with, with predators, with people that are trying to groom them. Um, so it's very inappropriate, inappropriate adult content online. Mm -hmm. It's very disembodied. It's very disembodied. And, um, our youth are really struggling. I mean, we have statistics showing that our youth are in a mental health crisis right now. Yeah. Yeah. Are there other therapists that are concerned that you know about and are they, cause it doesn't seem like very many people are talking about this. Yeah, there are, there are many. Um, when a therapist makes the choice to talk about this, they do so with incredible risk. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like we're back in Salem in some ways. Yeah. We're not going to be burned at the stake, but at the digital stake. At the digital stake. Yes. Yep. And they might lose their ability to pay their mortgage. They yeah. might lose their ability to feed their kids. And that's a form of a death for a mom. You know, most therapists are women, we're mothers, and we need to be able to provide for our families. Um, so they are silent out of self-protection. And also many of them really believe this stuff. They really believe that, that the, the trans, the gender ideology is the compassionate way forward. They haven't fully examined what this is about. Um, Myself and a few other therapists who speak, we either are on pause from practicing as a therapist and we've um, developed other sources of income. Like we're not relying on the income from our clinical license. Right. Or there are therapists who have actually had to defend their clinical license and that's stressful and expensive. Um, There are therapists who have moved to other states because we have these really strange, vague laws about what we can and cannot do in certain states. So most of the therapists who I'm connected with they stay under the radar yeah. and it's like, there's like kind of an underground railroad actually. Yeah. Well, and it seems like there's such a huge need for, from parents and children who are experiencing issues with, with the gender topic and helping their children to, they need to find therapists who are questioning this so that they can give them holistic mental health support rather yeah. than just kind of ushering them towards the the medical establishment, that kind of, that, um, what is it called? The, the line, the, uh, the, yeah, the, like the assembly line, yeah, the assembly the, line yeah. or whatever, whatever yeah. it is. But, um, you're saying that it's also possible just to have your license taken away as a whole, even if you are your own boss, like even if you have your own practice. Oh yes. Yes. Because we, um, our licenses come from a board. Every state has a board, And, um, like in my state conversion therapy is banned and all it takes is a client to like accuse me of conversion therapy. And then I would have to go defend my license to the board and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So I don't see any clients right now, um, with my clinical license ethically, it's, it would be against my, like my personal 
um, ethics and belief system to like, I wouldn't write a letter for a child to have um, a double mastectomy. I, I wouldn't yeah. do it. So it's kind of like ethically, I'm kind of opting out because I'm like, not yeah. willing to do those right. things. Yeah. Quickly, since you brought that up, can you just quickly share? Cause I think a lot of people and parents especially don't realize this is happening, that children are getting these medical treatments. Yeah. Oh, at yeah. Under 18. So what kinds oh, of yes. medical treatments are they receiving? Yes. Yes. So there's a recent, um, article that Reuters published. I don't know if you want to link to it in your show Mm notes, show notes, but, um, there are children under 18 receiving gender surgeries, what we used to call sex reassignment surgeries. Now it's a fluffy term called gender affirming care. Um, but yes, under the age of 18, the, the statistics are all published in the Reuters article. I don't know them off the top of my head, but we have, I I don't, I think it's thousands of, of young teen girls getting double mastectomies. Um, they are getting uh, puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and these are not pause buttons. Mm-hmm. of kids who take puberty blockers will go on to cross-sex hormones. Cross-sex hormones, the hormones of the opposite sex, um, I'm not a doctor, but we know from the research, they sterilize males and we're not sure yet what they do to female fertility. As far as genital surgery on kids, I don't know those numbers and I don't want to misspeak. So I would, I'd recommend looking at that article, okay. but, um, they are getting breast removal, yeah. elective mastectomies. Yes. And I think one of the things that is, I mean, obviously that just hearing that is concerning because children cannot cognitively consent to a life altering medical treatment like that, or medical, I wouldn't say treatment, a medical intervention or procedure. Um, and I also shouldn't say medical cause it's not medical, um, usually, but when I heard the statistic of how many, even children with true gender dysphoria mm-hmm. end up, um, what is the word I'm looking for? They, they end up like eight, it's like 70 or 80% of them outgrow it essentially, yeah. In yeah. a matter of, of time. Yeah. Isn't that, is it like 70 to 80%? Yeah. Is that yeah. statistic right? Yep. That's right. So, um, there are a few different studies, but depending on the study, approximately 70 to 98% mm-hmm. of, of children and youth with gender dysphoria, if they are not transitioned, socially transitioned. So if they don't adopt a new name, new pronouns, start, um, living as the opposite sex, they will, what we call desist on their own. It takes going through puberty mm-hmm. and they will stop. They will drop the trans identity. They will drop the cross sex identity on their own. And then of those, of those kids who drop the trans identity, the majority of them are, will grow up to be gay and lesbian and adults. Mm-hmm. I want to, it's like 70 to 90%, depending on the study. Yeah. So it's kind of like, depending on your views, I personally don't like the idea of kids going through unnecessary medical surgical treatments. Um, well, also irreversible, irreversible, not just, yeah. 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 So it's like, if you can kind of leave the kids alone, let them be support them in a psychosocial manner which is what's being promoted now in England, Finland, Sweden. Um, French doctors are pushing for that. Florida's public health is pushing for that. If we could support these kids in an exploratory, psychosocial, supportive manner, the overwhelming majority of them will desist. And of those, when they are adults, they will likely be gay or lesbian, Mm well-adjusted gay or lesbian, yeah. Well, and it's also really interesting just thinking about it. Like if you just take a minute to pause and think about what we're being told, we're being told that gender is fluid and that you can be different genders every day and that your body doesn't, it doesn't matter what your body looks like. You can be whatever gender you want. So then I wonder, well, why is there such a big push to medicalize these children and change their bodies? Why change a child's body if they could be a different gender the next day? You know, just according to this, this ideology, why change a child's body 
if they can be whatever gender they want, no matter what their bio- body looks like. I'm not saying I agree with the ideology, but it yeah. doesn't make sense. It's contradictory. Yeah. So the two, the two main philosophies of this, of what we call gender ideology, queer theory is, is they're very anti-medical intervention and, and very um, hostile to like biological science, but gender identity theory is very surgical medical friendly. So the reason why it doesn't make sense is because the two can be kind of contradictory And so we have gender identity theory saying, yes, we need to change the body to match this fixed gender brain. And then we have queer theory saying, no, the gender can can change today's Monday. The gender can change by Friday. Mm -hmm. So they are contradictory. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Many of the clinicians and the teachers and parents don't understand this. And so- one thing that doctors are starting a language doctors are starting to use right now, they're calling it a gender journey. Mm. And they're saying, yeah, you had the double mastectomy at, at 17 and now you regret it at 21. It's all part of your gender journey. And they'll say, they'll say, you know, life happens. Regret happens. That's awful. It makes me sick. Yeah. Okay, Teva, I could talk to you all day about this, but I know that we are running short on time. So I do want to just um, kind of transition into like, how can parents who are listening help raise their children to understand the reality of biological sex? And like, do you have any tips for parents, especially parents that might be sending their children to public school to um, protect them? Yeah, yeah. This is a topic so near and dear to my heart because I I just want to help everybody. And I, I wish I had a magic wand to have the perfect answer, but what I can offer is it's so important that kids have in person, in real life, positive community that is like rooted in the values of your family, whatever those are. So even if they're being taught what I view to be garbage in the public schools, there's this um, other community outside of school. And we can think of that community as a protective factor or a mitigating factor to this nonsense that's being taught in school, what I view to be nonsense. That might sound harsh, but I just don't like lying to the kids. Right. Um, Teach it as a theory. Cool. When they're developmentally ready, teach it as a fact to little ones. No nonsense in my view. So have this other community outside of school that is, um, that really builds your child up with a sense of positive ideas about who they are as a boy or a girl. And this is this positive community outside of school that's rooted in your values acts as a buffer to some of what they're being taught in the schools. I also recommend not allowing your child a free-for-all online. Much of this is also coming from social media and like YouTube influencers. And I'm of the opinion that I don't think we should just drop our kids off into this bad neighborhood of anything goes online and just hope for the best. So I think parents should be really intentional about their child's online consumption, both the content and the amount. I also think it's so important to keep our children embodied. Children today are suffering from disembodiment by living these digital lives. So what that could mean is like, get your child out there to to the closest farm. I don't know where you live. Mm -hmm. If you live in big city life, if you're in big city life and there are no farms, go to an animal shelter, have your child volunteer and learn about biology and starting with animals is really um, non-threatening age appropriate. Okay. Only the female goats get pregnant and nurse their babies. Only the female dogs get pregnant and have those little nursing puppies. So I say get your children involved in activities that are are embodied where they actually have to use their body. Like my daughter, she shovels hay. 
She's holding baby goats who then go to their nursing female mother, right? So I think thinking of um, age appropriate ways to teach about biology in a non-ideological way. Right. And I also think back to basics. So we've just moved so far into this modern world. And I think that we've lost a whole lot. So if you're a family of faith, don't be afraid to like, have your child learn about what, you know, God thinks of them and them being special and them being made perfectly. If you're not of a faith, have something that gives your child a sense of like meaning and purpose and that they were made just right. We used to have these messages of you are just right. Yeah. Was it on Sesame street? You know, I don't know. (laughs) Everywhere. I feel like it was everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. We want to bring in these messages. Yeah. Back to basics. It's okay. If our kids get mad at us when we limit the content and the amount of screen time, we can handle our kids getting mad at us and they still need to do the farm chores. Mm -hmm. That's what I say. Yeah. I love that, especially with the the virtual, the online boundaries and, and screen time boundaries. I think that's so important. I know that there are a lot of people that kind of believe that kids can regulate themselves online, and I completely disagree. Um, it is our job as parents to set limits, and if our kids were capable of regulation in all arenas, they would not have parents. They would not need us to live with them and guide them for 18 years. Um, especially like the landscape of technology and the virtual space is insane. There is so much horrific, awful stuff, not to mention that it is designed to be addicting. There's no way to regulate out of an addiction on your own as an, as a minor, especially there's no way their brains are not equipped for that. So it's the boundaries are so important. So important. As you know, from your work, Taylor, children have underdeveloped nervous systems. We have to co-regulate them. They are not capable of that on their own. There are people who I really respect in every other aspect of their work, except for the opinion that children can regulate their online behavior. I totally disagree with that. I can't always regulate my own online behavior. I, I I find myself <laughs> mindlessly scrolling and I'm like, I need to put this down, but I can't the addiction. I, ha- if adults can be dysregulated online and get addicted, kids are that much more susceptible to it. People Absolutely. need to realize this is, this is not like the 1950s or the 1970s, like where there was no technology and kids just like, I don't know what kids did back then. I, <laughs> I didn't live back then, but this is a completely new and different, different thing here. Like this yeah. is designed to overstimulate, dysregulate and cause addiction. Absolutely. I, I like the idea of parents giving some agency back to the kids. I tend to um, align with that school of thought within limits. Right. What I say to parents is do not trust big tech to, yeah. to, to look out for your child's well-being. Yeah. They, they have one goal and one goal only, and it is not your child's well-being. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Tava, I seriously could talk to you for like three more hours. I feel like there we could literally do like two or three more podcasts and just like really dive into some specific things here. And there was some stuff we didn't even touch on. Anyways, uh, maybe you'll have to come back and join me in the future. Count me in. I would love it. <laughs> but can you just tell parents if they want to see more of your work or maybe get some support from you, where they can find you and what kinds of services you offer? Absolutely. So I offer um, children's mental health consulting and parent coaching. I can be found on my website, tavajohnstone.com. All my services. Awesome. So everything's explained there. You can reach out to me there. Um, If you want to see my like advocacy work and some of my sort of public art, you can find me on Instagram at neurocuriousTherapist. And then if you want to read some spicier, longer form thoughts on some of the culture war topics, 
you can find me on Substack, tava.substack.com. Awesome. Yeah. Tava, thank you so much for joining me today. I, You're just a wealth of knowledge. I love the way your brain works. And I'm just so grateful that we got to sit down and have this conversation. Thank you, Taylor. Me too. I was so, so great. I love talking about this and, and finally getting to meet you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe and leave a review if you feel called to. It really helps our message reach more parents. You can also follow me on Instagram at Taylor Kulik for similar content or visit my website at www.taylorkulik.com. I offer online courses where we really dive into infant and toddler sleep holistically. And we also offer one-to-one holistic sleep support services if you're looking to improve your child's sleep or shift patterns without sleep training. If you know a parent who would benefit from this podcast, please share. And if you'd like to financially support this podcast to allow me to create more episodes more often, you can visit anchor.fm slash Taylor I hope you'll join me next time.